Welcome to another episode of Off the Wire, Theology That Works. I am really thankful to have my friend and uh, co-laborer in theology, uh, Dr. Luke Stamps, who uh, teaches theology at Anderson University in Anderson, South Carolina, and he just took that post a little over a year ago. He was um, serving at California Baptist University, uh, teaching theology there, and uh, leading there. You were leading their online program there, weren't you, for a season? I was the lead faculty for Christian studies and online. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, Luke and I both studied at Southern Seminary and uh, studied under the same uh, supervisor, Steve Wellam, who we had previously on the podcast. And so uh, I am really honored because Luke is not only a friend, but we also attend the same church and he is a huge blessing. He and his wife, Josie, and their five wonderful children. And uh, so now you have been teaching at Anderson a little over a year are there any secrets that we should know about? <laughs> I don't know where the bodies are buried just yet. But, uh, <laughs> things, things have been going well. Good, uh, good, good. And now you're, you teach, of course, uh, theology there, and you also teach uh, like a first-year a first year experience at, at Anderson? Or what, what you... uh, that, yeah, that's kind of open to all faculty to volunteer to teach the first-year experience. I've done it once before, uh, you know, which is kind of just a – initiation into university life um but yeah systematic theology is my my mainstay um and then classes in theology i also teach church history okay and, in a certain era of church history well we cover all of it uh in a semester um yeah. so um yeah introductory in nature and everything yeah yeah just kind of a survey so and then i also teach a class on on christian worldview which is like a gen ed class for everyone has to take um so that's that's another fun one get, get exposure to the whole student body and not just our christian studies students what, what does that class look like uh it's sort of like an introduction to theology and the ethical and worldview implications of christian theology okay so like what books like what 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 kind of stuff are you doing are yeah so i, I have them reading a um, Beth Felker Jones book, Practicing Christian Doctrine, which is just a college level introduction to Christian theology, especially how it plays out in, in your practical Christian life. Uh, and then I have them reading um, Mark Knoll's book, Jesus Christ and the Life of the Mind, to give them sort of a, an exposure to how, how to think, how to think about the, the ways in which the Christian worldview gives shape and motivation to various fields of study and various vocations. That's really what the class is oriented towards. It's like saying, okay, well, they have to do an introduction to the Bible their freshman year. They do an introduction to philosophy their sophomore year. And then their junior year, this is kind of an introduction to the Christian worldview and Christian theology and how it, you know, hopefully will impact. So after they've had philosophy and, and, yeah. and things. Yeah. yeah. So like, so, I mean, that, that's really the, the impetus for this podcast is theology that, that practices, that actually works itself out. I mean, what, why, why teach that class? Because I'm, I'm sure that you had a choice and some, to some degree you had a choice on what, what you're teaching. But, I mean, help kind of introduce us to in what ways does theology actually work itself out in practice? I mean, whether it be, hey, this person's pursuing being a lawyer or being, uh, you know, an entrepreneur or what have you, like, how does the Christian worldview, how is it distinct than, say, a Hindu worldview uh, to affecting how someone lives? Yeah. 
I mean, at the surface level, uh, the thing that students immediately recognize is that there are ethical implications, right, to being a Christian. Um, you know, obviously we would hope, you know, Christian businessmen and women are going to be acting ethically in their business practices. Uh, you know, those who go into the medical fields, the same thing, right? So I think that at the surface level, that, that's something that most Christians get, that, you know, we, we need to act as Christians and whatever we do, you know, seven days a week, we want to be representing the Christian ethic. But one thing I try to do is get students to think um, beyond just the surface level to the more kind of structural level of like, why, why do we even care about, for instance, pursuing nursing? You know, we have a lot of nursing students here at Anderson. So, so walk, walk us through that. Walk us through that. Like what, why would someone care? Yeah. I mean, I, so I want to, I want to help students think through the doctrine of creation, you know, that God has made uh, the material world good. Uh, that belief is actually not universal is in the history of uh, religions and the history of, of thought the, the idea that the material world has inherent dignity uh, made by God is good. Uh, especially the human being made in the image and likeness of God as uh, an embodied soul so that both soul and body are parts of the human nature. Both are important. Um, so ministering to the whole person. Uh, and then, I mean, you could, you know, we want to start to add depth to our understanding as well. Um, so just thinking about doctrines like the incarnation, right? That uh, God uh, in, in enacting a, a saving plan uh, didn't just send an angel or an emissary or a messenger, but God came himself and dignified the body and the soul, dignified human nature by taking human nature to himself. And of course we see as Jesus ministers to people in the gospels, he's not just preaching to their heads, but he's also ministering to their bodies. And so you start to develop all those pieces, um, you know, that's grounded in all these doctrines. These doctrines don't then just, they become something more than just a kind of theoretical uh, framework, but they actually provide, you know, a structure for how uh, Christians, why, why Christians would pursue, uh, you know, say in this example, a, uh, a vocation in the medical field and then how they would do so how, you know, what, what, what principles might guide them uh, as they pursue a field like that. So that's the kind of thing I'm trying to get students to think about in that course is, you know, kind of plunge into the, the more kind of architectural um, uh, parts of the Christian faith and ask, okay, how does this actually affect how we pursue these various fields? Yeah. Do you find like a lot of folks uh, that you interact with a lot of evangelicals specifically um, like, uh, do, do they have more of a platonic view of the world? Like we are just a shell, the flesh, or even a Gnostic view, like the flesh is bad. We're going to get rid of this. Or, or do you find that there's actually more health than that, uh, in, in a lot of understanding of the, the Christian worldview as it relates to earthiness? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I'm not sure if you, you would see like a full fledged Gnosticism or anything close to that, but you do see a kind of compartmentalization in our lives, you know, so we kind of, we think about we kind of have our physical lives where we would go and do our job and get paid for it and mm. eat and sleep and do physical yep. things. But then we mm. almost kind of have as a separate compartment, our spiritual lives, you know, yeah. uh, where we pray, have our quiet time, read our Bible, share the gospel, go to church. Maybe even having like a devotion every day, but it's, but it's 10 minutes, 15 or, or an hour in the morning. Right. But it's, but it's somewhat disconnected from, okay, now I'm punching the clock to do I'll be on my assembly line. Yeah, exactly. And, and, we, and we can kind of treat our vocations 
uh, a lot of times I think Christians feel like, well, my, my, my job is only mm. usable by God. If it's a, if it's a springboard to evangelism. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously we want people to be sharing the gospel, right. And they're, when they go to work, but like the, we try to get students and try to get Christians to think, no, actually when you go do your job, uh, whenever you're again, th- thinking about the nurse example, uh, whenever you're using your skills, uh, to minister to people's bodies, hmm. uh, you're loving and serving your neighbor to the glory of God in that. Yeah. Now look for opportunities, pray for opportunities to, to share the gospel in your job as well. But it's not as if the goodness of the job is reducible to sort of just the spiritual elements. Yeah. yeah. Trying to get people to think more holistically. Huh? Yeah. Or even I'm making money so that I can give to the church or give to some ministry as like a means to an end, as opposed to an end in, in itself. Yeah. Would that be fair? If it's a job that's worth doing, right? If it's a job that's that's uh, an honorable job, I mean, there's some jobs that are not honorable, right? But 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 if it's a job that's an honorable job, uh, then it's a means by which you can love God and love and serve your neighbor, uh, even even in the carrying out of your, you know, I, I when I, whenever I was in seminary, I worked at a, a natural gas supplier as you know in order to, to to pay the bills, and it was just fascinating to like see like what goes into the energy industry, right? I mean, that there are people who work in the energy industry who are providing, um, you know, natural gas in this case to these large industrial and commercial customers who are producing products that everyone uses. And you can kind of see like it's a part of the overall economy. And if that's a, if that's a, 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 a worthy job to pursue, then we, that we should think about it in terms of a way that we we're loving others. Like we're serving others by providing this good or the service. So I, I think, I do think we need to kind of break down some of those uh, barriers between the spiritual and the material parts of our lives to see the whole of life as, as a, a way that we love God and love neighbor. Yeah. It sounds really familiar because I remember you and I've had this conversation before, I believe, where um, when I first started walking with the Lord in college, um, I went to University of Louisville to go to med school. And it was, um, you know, I'm, I'm really thankful for the, the parachurch ministry and the church I was involved in that helped me grow in my spirituality. But um, the really good Christians, the really devoted Christians went into full-time ministry. Uh, is that, has that been at least in your, your experience? I'm not talking about Anderson particularly. I'm talking about just in general. I mean, do you see that, that that's a trend too, that if the really, really big risk takers are the ones who go into, they're going overseas, which is, and these are, these are great things, but almost like this hierarchy of, of importance of what's, what's good. Yeah. And I, I remember, um, the moment that it struck me that that way of thinking was wrongheaded. Um, I was actually talking to my father-in-law as I was preparing to go to seminary. Um, and, and he was just sort of asking, you know, like, so just tell me more about, you know, why, you know, why you want to go to seminary, why you want to pursue ministry. Um, and I, I remember saying something to the effect of, well, ministry is the most important thing that we can do. Mm-hmm. As you know, to preach the gospel is the most important yeah. thing we can do. And it's almost as if I caught, like I, I could hear <laughs> in my mouth and realizing like, cause I had heard preachers like say that sort of thing. Right. Yep. Yep. And, and so like, but whenever I actually verbalized it to this, this man who had 
<laughs> served his country uh, as career Air Force and had retired and was now working in the financial sector. Huh. Um, you know, just like hearing it coming out of my, you know, 23 year old mouth or whatever, uh, this idea that like my job is more the most important thing in the world. And I was just thinking like, like a pastor is not going to survive very long if they are exalting themselves above like everyone else in the congregation. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, I think that just having that, that, that kind of, you know, kind of sharp clergy laity distinction, um, it sort of is taking us back behind the reformation, honestly, like this is the great, one of the great insights of Martin Luther was, uh, that calling or vocation was not limited to the clergy. Mm. But they had this notion of calling or vocation was something that every Christian had and our, call, our calling to belong to Christ, but then also in the various ways that God has gifted and equipped us to love and serve our neighbors, that those things are as dignified and as, as noble as pursuing some kind of ministry. So, I mean, I mean obviously we want to uphold the dignity of ministry as well as a high calling from God, but it's not, it's not as if the, the ministers are more important to the kingdom than the mothers or, you know, the, the people who work in the service industry or, or in business or whatever. Yeah. And if you even take the, the Protestant Reformation itself, that they, they helped to, for lack of a better term, level the playing field so that every person is a minister of the gospel. Every person is a priest. I mean, to use Peter's language, right? That they're a priest to God. And so as you're, regulating gas and as you're, as you're, you know, binding up wounds as a nurse or these kind of things that that also is a ministry of, of God to, to bring order to creation or to, to serve people. And they may not even know that you're serving them. Right. Right. Yeah. That's not to say there's not, there's not something unique about um, ordained ministry. You know, I do think that the, we don't need to lose sight of the, the sacred, right. That, that there is a, uh, a unique calling that God has given the church, a unique gift that he's given to the church and pastors and teachers um, to, uh, to lead the church, to preach, to administer the sacraments, to shepherd. Um, th that's a unique calling as well that, you know, we wouldn't anyway want to diminish, but, uh, but instead of seeing these things in competition with each other, right. Seeing them instead as part of uh, the, the complementary gifts that God has given to the church. Yeah. So you, you went to seminary, you went to Southern, but you weren't always a Christian. I, I, you know, so walk us through how you came to know the Lord and, and how that also then informed what, what your studies of theology and particularly Christology. Um, but you, were you raised in a Christian home or? Yeah. So my, my parents were both Christians. We, you know, we, I grew up in a small town, Alabama. Um, where life kind of revolves around the church. We were there, you know, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, revivals twice a year, vacation Bible school every summer. Um, you know, a lot, a lot of church life uh, growing up. So I, you know, I don't remember a time where I didn't know, you know, the basic message of Christianity that Jesus died and rose again uh, for the salvation of the world. Um, but I do, you know, recall a time at vacation Bible school when I was seven where that message became uh, intimately personal to me, where I remember just feeling guilt over my own sin and disobedience and, and then, and then acknowledging that Jesus died for me, you know, even for me. And, and just remember that personal nature of that. 
So, you know, I, I, in conversation with my parents, my pastor, um, was baptized later that summer when I was seven. And, and I, you know, really have no, uh, have never had any serious doubts that that's when God saved me, that that's whenever I was converted. And, um, you know, by God's grace have sought to, to walk with him through the many ups and downs of, of growing up and, uh, trying to live the Christian life. Um, but yeah. Did you ever have like a time of rebellion or anything like that? Uh, nothing like overt. I mean, obviously we all have our own sins uh, of the heart and, um, uh, but I, I never had like a, uh, my testimony doesn't include like a, like a period of, you know, a long period of drugs or anything like that. You know I mean? I, that, I think people, caffeine. certainly that. Yeah. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, I, so I, I, I haven't, I don't have anything dramatic, a dramatic turn like that. Um, but just seeing, you know, God continue to, uh, expose sin and, and your heart and your life and, and, just the ups and downs of, of the Christian life. But again, I've had been blessed to have parents and uh, my sister and my, uh, my wife now of, of almost 15 years and friends along the way who have helped, you know, grow me in my spiritual walk. And so you, um, you grew up in a tradition. Was it, was it um, like a non-denominational tradition? What, what was the tradition that you grew up in from seven years old on up through college? Yeah, Southern Baptist. So I'm born, born, raised Southern Baptist churches, and that's been my my orbit uh, for most of my pilgrimage. Yeah. Well, I wanna uh, I wanna put a uh, you know we'll we'll put a pin in that because I want to come back to that with regards to where you find yourself now and and a love for for liturgy particularly and and your Center for Baptist Renewal work uh, with Matt Emerson. Uh, but I want to want to ask. So you you went to Southern Seminary, got your MDiv, and then you did a PhD in uh, Christology, right? Yeah, that's right. And and it was on something. What was it on the uh, extra Calvinisticum? Is that is that the fancy term, or, or what was it? What was it on? Because I remember you explained it to me the first time, and I just glazed over and said, "That's great, man." Yeah, I mean it, the extra Calvinisticum was part part of what I, I discussed, but no the the the, the the issue I looked at was um, the the question about the number of wills in the incarnate Christ, uh, W I L L, uh, will uh, whether or not Christ has one will or two. Okay. So that was there was, ever an advocacy for three? No, not that I know of. Okay. <laughs> no, okay. No one went to the Trinitarian kind of analogy route. Okay, that's yeah. good. Yeah. So yeah, Seems I mean the. Um, I, I had read some authors along the way who um, provoked uh, interest in that. So that's what I went with. Who who, who were some of those? Um, Alvin Plantinga um, and uh, some, some, some uh, other philosophers and theologians and, and uh, evangelicalism who, you know, the, the, the traditional view is that Christ has two wills, one, the divine will that he shares with the Father and Spirit from all eternity, the human will that he assumes in the incarnation. That's been the traditional view since the seventh century. Uh, but in recent years, some folks have called that into question and said, no, he really only has one will because he's only one person. Hmm. If he had two wills, he would be two persons, and that would be a heresy in its own right. So we've got to say instead he has one. And so it was that 
that break with the traditional view that sparked my interest in it. And, and that's a recent, that's a recent within the past 50 years. Yeah. Yeah. Within the past uh, 20, 30 years. Oh. Um, I just read something uh, just this past week of somebody saying that exact same thing. He's in, in the Franciscan tradition and arguing that, that, that same thing. So help somebody learn a new Latin term, extra Calvinistic. And what, what in the world is that? Yeah. So that's, um, the, the, the idea in the extra Calvinisticum is that the Son of God in becoming incarnate uh, is not limited to or circumscribed by his human nature. Um, and actually grows out of ref, the Reformation debates over uh, the presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper. Mm. Okay, show, tease out that connection for us. Yeah, so the, the, the Lutheran view was that um, by virtue of the union of the two, two natures in Christ, the divine nature and the human nature, the human nature sort of takes on the properties of the divine nature and particularly takes on the property of omnipresence. Um, and so they spoke of the ubiquity or the omnipresence of Christ's body. And that's how the Lutherans could make sense out of the body and blood of Christ being in, with, and under the elements of the Lord's Supper but not identified as right. Yep. Um, so it's, it's not transubstantiation where it actually becomes one in substance with the body and blood of Christ, but that the body and blood of Christ are sort of already there, right? Uh, because of the, 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 the union of two natures in Christ. Now real quick, um, does that happen in, in the Lutheran view? Does that happen at the words of institution? Like this is my body, like in, in the Roman Catholic view where, that's the moment that that becomes the body and blood of Christ. And that's why the bell rings in the Roman Catholic church. Is that, is that the same case as, as far as you know, within the Lutheran tradition? Uh, yeah, I'd have, to, I'd have to ask my Lutheran friends about the, yeah. you know, their precise. I mean, they do believe there's some unique presence of Christ in the supper, but the, the view that, that undergirds it would say that Christ's body and blood are sort of everywhere. Right. Yeah. And, and okay. It's not a special case really that his body and blood would be, uh, uh, in the elements of the Lord's Supper, because Christ is everywhere. Now, certainly, there's a unique presence in the supper, mm. um, but it but it's this idea that somehow the humanity of Christ takes on the property of omnipresence. That the Reformed tradition, so John Calvin and the Calvinists said, no, this the the human nature of Christ um, is not omnipresent. It's spatially located, uh, just as it was here on earth. So it is now at the right hand of the Father. Um, the human nature of Christ is not physically everywhere. Mm -hmm. uh, Christ is present with his people in a unique way in the supper uh, by means of the Holy Spirit, um, Calvin argues. Uh, so there is a real presence of Christ in the supper. It's not merely a, a memorial for Calvin. Mm -hmm. There's a real presence of Christ in both of his natures, the, the person of the mediator, God and man, present to the people of God when they take this meal in faith. But it's not a physical presence in the elements of bread and wine. Uh, it's a spiritual presence. And so Calvin argued that, that the Son of God, it, it's not as if, I mean, in the Lutheran view, it's sort of like the, the divine nature is kind of contracted into the human nature, and then the human nature becomes omnipresent. Hmm. What Calvin is trying to say is the two natures, the divine nature and human nature, each retain their distinctive characteristics in, in the union so that the divine nature doesn't become the human nature. The human nature doesn't become the divine nature, 
they remain distinct even though they are united in the person of the Son. And so what Calvin is arguing then is the Son of God is omnipresent, yes. The Son of God is always omnipresent as God, right, in his divine nature. Even before the Incarnation. Right. Yeah. And that doesn't change in the Incarnation. Yeah. That it, 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 even in taking to himself a human nature, the Son of God just always is omnipresent. That, that, that's one of the uh, essential attributes of his deity. Uh, so that he's not contracted into his human nature. Uh, he's not, again, circumscribed by it. He's not hemmed in by it. Uh, but he has a, a, an existence as God beyond his human nature. And this is what the, the Lutherans lampooned as Calvin's extra, right? So as if as if the divinity of Christ were spilling out over you know, the, the physical. So it's pejorative. So pejorative in nature, the, the term. Right. That's where the term came from. Extra. Huh. Okay, but you know, as uh, uh, scholars have looked at this, especially David Willis wrote a book on the extra Calvinisticum uh, several decades ago. But uh, as he points out, this was actually the 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 view of the early church. Huh. Uh, the the early church fathers all held this view that the, the the two natures are united, yes, but they're distinct, so that the Son of God is not limited to his human nature. Um, so even like Cyril of Alexandria talks about, you know, while, while, you know, the baby Jesus was nursing at Mary's breast, he was still upholding the universe by the word of his power. In uh, his divine nature. Yeah. His divine nature. Not that his humanity was, was upholding the universe, but the son of God in his divine nature is holding up uh, the so, universe. So how does that, how does that not make Jesus uh, schizophrenic? Like, how does that not make him... Uh, turning it on and off, as it were, and becoming a hundred percent divine, a hundred percent human. Like, how how do you respond to somebody who's like, well, that just sounds like that. No, no one exists that way. We call them a split personality disorder. Right. So this is kind of the charge on 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 the the one end, right? That that I'm describing here. The charge is that it is Nestorian, which was the ancient heresy mm -hmm. that basically amounted to there being two persons. Yeah. yeah incarnate Christ, the Son, the Word of God, and then Jesus as an almost distinct person. Um, and so that certainly is the, the danger that you want to avoid on, on the one end. Um, it is avoidable because what the tradition has affirmed on this point is that there is only one person who is who's existing in these two natures. So yes, there are two natures that retain their distinctive properties, but there's only one person who's subsisting in each of them. And that's the person of the son. Um, so that the same person you see walking and talking in Galilee, healing people and teaching and, and calming the wind and the waves, that person that you see in his humanity is just the second person of the Trinity. There's not another person there. Uh, so the unity is found in, in the person of the son, not in some kind of commingling of the natures. So that's how you avoid the, the Nestorian heresy. Can you help us by way of analogy to be able to grasp that a little bit more for, cause it's very, that's very nuanced and technical. Yeah. No, no, I can't. <laughs> There's no analogy that may, yeah, I mean, people, like ice. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's trouble, the same, same sort of trouble that you run into with analogy of the Trinity, you run into with analogies yeah. of the incarnation, right? It's, it's just one of a kind. Uh, I mean, some people have tried to appeal to like depth psychology, you know, like that, that 
even even within a human mind what's that you mean like it and ego type stuff like psychoanalysis like a freudian uh, idea that we have kind of depths of (laughs) consciousness even within one person's mind um but even then that the the analogy breaks down because you're talking about like within a single mind uh and here we would be talking about two natures two minds two wills um so it's not a perfect analogy but 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 even then you know we can uh, we can envision even in our own in our own minds uh to pick a more mundane example like if you're driving down the street uh maybe you're thinking about you know what you need to pick up at the grocery store or what you're going to have for dinner or what plans you have for the evening as you're driving as you're driving like you whenever you first were learning to drive at 15 years old you were only driving <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. But even, even within our own consciousness, we can think about things on more than one level, right? That's not a perfect analogy because with yeah. Christ, two minds, two wills, two natures. Um, and it's but, not like he shuts it on and off or, or, or would you espouse that view? Like how, how yeah. can someone explain that? Is it something like where he says, oh, I don't know the end. The, the son doesn't know the end. Only the father knows the end. I don't know. Um, you see these, these these points where Jesus is like, well, I don't know. Yeah. You tell me. Um, how yeah, you- it has to be simultaneous, I think. Um, so it's not it's not as if it's it's a zero sum game. Like sometimes mm-hmm. thinking is divine, and sometimes it's not binary. Okay. Uh, but but I, I take it that what it means to be God is that you possess all of the divine attributes necessarily, mm. and 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 immutably. So it's not if 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 a person is divine. He can't stop being omniscient, <laughs> or yeah. he can't stop being omnipresent. Yeah, uh, because those those are those are just attributes that are identical with what it means to be God. Hmm. Um, so, um, so the, there there is a view known as the canonic theory. Yep, I was going to ask you that, yeah. that 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 espouses this view that basically the Son kind of turned off his deity in order to become incarnate and live within the constraints of, uh, of a human nature. Um, and then maybe at some point in his exaltation, he might get those divine properties back. He might, he might, or he d- definitely does. Well, I mean, that's, there's a, that's an open-ended question to me. Huh. If, Why? if the incarnation lasts forever as the new Testament. Yeah. Then he can't get it back. Then you can't get it back. It seems like a one, <laughs> Like to, yeah, yeah. if it's necessary to give up certain divine attributes in order to be a human and you remain a human forever, then you can't get them back. Yeah. You know, you've given them up. Yeah. Kind of like, kind of like Ariel in the little mermaid. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Except that analogy breaks down. Yeah. So, so again, that was canotic. That was K E N O T I C right. From the Greek kenosis, uh, from what Philippians two, right. Where he, he humbled himself, um, taking on the form of a servant, the morphe of a servant. Right. Uh, yeah, so he, he stripped himself of his divinity. But I think uh, Steve Wellen was really helpful for me in that, that, that he humbled himself by putting on. Humility comes by putting on. But, he, but the better analogy rather than Ariel and the Little Mermaid, uh, while we may love her, uh, is the, emp- the emperor who puts on the robes of a, of a pauper. And he still has all authority as the king, but he, by all looks and intents, he put on human flesh, to use the Pauline language again, right? right. So there is some kind of emptying that's, that's involved there. I mean, we, we have to do justice to the fact that he, 
you know, he emptied himself taking the form of a servant. But the emptying is um, a, a giving up of the right to be recognized yeah. as the God that you really are. So yeah. uh, what, wasn't there a TV show about this a few years ago, like a undercover CEO or something like that, where CEOs of companies would like go to like the, you know, the floor or whatever. I thought you were going to talk about perfect strangers. That was, that was a good one too with Balky Bar talking. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> way back to TGI. Or Mr. Belvedere. That would be a good one <laughs> for all our eighties fans. So, so, so somebody is going to be a nurse. They're going to, to the hospital. Like, how does that help them? How does that inspire faith? Um, and, 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 and I think, and I, and I'd love for you to respond to that, 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 that pragmatic evangelical tendency to be like, well, how, how does this matter right now? Um, I'd love for you to kind of reflect on that and help somebody say, help somebody as they work through this really, um, nuanced philosophical and necessary. I mean, I, I, wouldn't you argue, I mean, this is, this is an orthodoxy issue. This is something that if you're going to be a Christian, you have to affirm Jesus is hundred percent divine and hundred percent man that you can't, you can't get around that and you can't rightly call yourself a Christian. If you say, well, he was just a good teacher or he was God, but he, he really wasn't incarnate. So can you help walk through how does that help someone's personal devotional life? Yeah. I mean, it, on, in, on the one hand, I would say that not everyone needs to know sort of the technical uh, vocabulary and, and the historical development. You know? That's the danger, right? A lot of times, right? The danger is I don't know enough, so I need to go learn all these and give me a notepad, kenosis, okay, right. now extra calvinisticum and all, so forth. Yeah. Th these are categories certainly that every pastor should know about. Mm. Um, um, again, maybe not at the level as someone who has done like doctoral work in some of these areas, but I do, I mean, I think every pastor needs to know about basic Christian orthodoxy and the heresies that have arisen uh, through the centuries and how we should avoid those and how we teach, you know, uh, Christian orthodoxy. So why, why, why get, kind of pull back another layer. Why, why, why is that important? Yeah. Without stating the obvious, I mean, right. But I want to I want to state the obvious because some people are like, well, I'm just a simple guy, uh, you know. I just want to preach the gospel, which is awesome. Praise God that somebody wants to preach the gospel, you know. But but somebody who's like, nah, I just that, that's not that important, Luke. Yeah, I, I just think most people already know that it's important at some level, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you say because you hear I hear people say, well, I just want to love Jesus, you know, <laughs> and I just want to share Jesus, and that, of course that's great great sentiment, but like, which Jesus, mm -hmm. you know? What are we proclaiming when we proclaim the gospel? Yeah, because Islam also affirms Isa, right? It also affirms Jesus. And then you also have, you know, uh, he was a good teacher. And most people in our, who, are, who are secularists would affirm that too. Yeah. Yeah. And it, but, it, you know, Mormonism, Job's Witnesses. I mean, yep. yeah. yeah. That Jesus died and rose again for the salvation of the world. But yeah. why, why is the Christian gospel different than these Aryan groups? Mm. is the identity of Jesus Christ. The Wait, you said Aryan groups. Can you, that's, what's an Aryan? I, I said sectarian. But, oh, sectarian. Uh, okay, yep. But they are Aryans. <laughs> okay, that's what I thought you said. Okay. Yeah, the Aryans who would affirm that Jesus was just a, a an enlightened human. Yeah, or, or a super human, a creature yeah. of God, certainly, yeah. but, uh, but not God equal with the Father from all eternity. A a Arianism is a heresy. Just Right, yeah, yeah right. 
Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I think, it, you know, even if you just get down to sort of the brass tacks of I want to share the gospel, uh, to share the gospel, you have to share the identity of the one who's dying on the cross. Like, why, yeah. is, why does it matter to me that a teacher from Nazareth 2000 years ago was crucified at the hands of the Romans? Lots of people were crucified at the hands of the Romans. Haven't you seen Spartacus? Yeah. And, and there were people that were died and resurrected like Lazarus, even within the biblical storyline. Yeah. 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 So, what is it about this man and this crucifixion and these events that somehow has implications for all of mankind? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So uh, that only makes sense if, if this one is both God and man. And so I think that's, I mean, that's the, the big idea um, is the gospel, right? I mean, that's the basic message of Christianity. That was my email. Uh, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so if you care about the gospel, you care about sharing the good news of salvation you have to care at some level about the identity of who Jesus is. Now, again, not, not everyone I think has, has, has a, a kind of e equal burden to learn some of the technical vocabulary and historical development. I think pastors need to be equipped to do that because they're teaching and preaching the whole counsel of God. They're going to get questions from parishioners. Uh, they're going to be faith. They're, gonna, they, they're at the front end of the spear and helping the church know how to articulate uh, the gospel for our own day. So there's a, a heightened, um, demand that's placed upon those who teach. Uh, but every Christian, I think, should know at least the basics, right? The basics that, that Jesus is true God and true man, and yet somehow that doesn't mean he's two persons, but he's a single person. That's important, right? It's important that the person who's dying on the cross is God, and not just that he sort of sheds his deity and lets his humanity die, but no, the person who's dying on the cross is God the Son, and that's why his death can pay a penalty against sin that's eternal and infinite. That's how he can secure salvation uh, for his people. And so the unity of the person, the distinction of the two natures, some basic understanding of that has to be in place, uh, I think, to understand, you know, the implications of our salvation. And also, uh, one thing that the early church recognized, too, is uh, our worship, right? I mean, Christians, since Matthew 28, at least, uh, and, and going back to Matthew 2, if you look at the Magi, but Christians have been worshiping Jesus as God yeah. from the very beginning. And, and so if Jesus is not God equal with the Father, idolatry. we're committing idolatry, we're dead in our sins. You know, I mean, it's, these are not insignificant implications, right? Yeah, well, uh, what, do you think it, what do you think it is within people, uh, myself included. I mean, that that where you get kind of in, you wade into the deep water, and then you kind of throw your hands up and you say, "Bah, I want to." You know, what do you think it is? Have you spent time thinking about that yourself in your own personal life? Like, why we just give up sometimes and just say, "Well, I'll leave that to Doctor Stamps." or Dr. Wireman to kind of, it's figured out somewhere, but, but you've made the case that pastors need to be able to, they may not say extra Calvinisticum, they may not say kenosis, but they need to have some kind of answer so that we're not idolaters. But yeah. then, but, but what do you think it is that within people that kind of throw their hands up? I mean, at one level, it may be um, a healthy impulse that recognizes that knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Mm-hmm. So I think that I see, that's good. There is a danger that anybody who spent long um, <laughs> around <laughs> yep. college students yep. know 
right? That there's a danger. Yep. People being puffed up with knowledge. Yeah. I think it's an, in one sense, it might be a noble attempt to avoid yeah. being proud. Um, uh, but at the same time, Paul is not saying don't be knowledgeable. <laughs> right. I mean, sure. he consistently praying uh, for the churches that they would grow in the wisdom and knowledge of our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ. So it's not an excuse for ignorance. Like the warning that knowledge has the potential to make you proud is not cover for being ignorant right? We want to press on to know. We want to press on to grasp in our understanding what we've already received by faith. But there is a danger uh, that uh, we can become um, sort of uh, our heads can become top heavy, you know, and, and our hearts can, can shrivel. And, uh, and I think that that should be avoided, right? But that doesn't mean then that we somehow um, content ourselves with ignorance. I mean, the, the beauty of the Christian gospel, the beauty of the divine revelation in scripture is that it's both simple and profound. It's both easy and difficult. And You're sounding very Augustinian, leading with charity and also the scriptures being shallow enough for a child and deep enough for an elephant, right? So, exactly. yeah, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, um, you, you've mentioned before that, you know, your um, love for, for Christology, like you started reading some textbooks uh, about, about Christology. Was there something in particular from, from even your upbringing or something from your own Christian life that, that resonated? What, 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 was the, what was the impetus towards moving towards this particular area of theology? Yeah, so um, uh, a, a friend of mine, Fred Sanders, who teaches at Biola, uh, in California. Mm -hmm. Uh, I heard him once say that, that, you know, every, everyone who aspires to, to learn theology should pick a doctrine and, and just sort of give your life to that doctrine. I mean, obviously you have to be able to teach, you know, the whole range of Christian doctrine, but like maybe pick one. I mean, like I've heard similar advice about like picking like a figure from church history and like reading everything that they wrote or something like that. But, but Fred's advice was to sort of pick a doctrine Mm -hmm. and dig in deep on that doctrine and preferably pick one of the big ones, <laughs> you know, like not, so not like, you know, I want to study like, you know, millennial views and that's going to be my pet doctrine. I mean, let's, we need to know about revelation 20. It's in the Bible, not unimportant, but like one of the big ones, you know, like Trinity incarnation atonement, something like that, where you're just going to, you're going to dig your heels in. And so for me, as I was coming through seminary and thinking about what I wanted to, to research, um, that I was just drawn to the, what, you know, what seems to be quite clearly the central doctrine of the Christian faith, that God became man in Jesus Christ for the salvation of the world. What better doctrine to devote yourself to? And so I think that's part of, of the draw there is just uh, a desire to know the, the kind of hub at the center of, of the faith, the Trinity, obviously, and then the incarnation. Well, one of the biggest charges leveled, and you and I would joke about this, I remember at, at Southern, is and, and in order to be able to explain these biblical doctrines, you have to use philosophy. And then the running joke is that the, you know, the New Testament, Old Testament guys actually read the Bible and the systematic guys read philosophy. So can you kind of, because what we just heard was a lot of philosophy. Um, like, can you kind of, can you help reconcile those things to where we don't become uh, just 
merely philosophers. Right. And then we don't become merely, you know, biblicists. Like, right. can, can you kind of help walk us through yeah. your, your genesis in, in loving and having philosophy inform your theology? Right. Well, I think, thankfully, in the last several years, the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of attempts for um, cross-pollination between the theological disciplines, uh, where, you know, you have biblical scholars recognizing the need to have some theological categories in place, and you have theologians recognizing the need to ground their, their theology in Scripture. And so there's lots of interesting uh, conversations and projects uh, commentary series, and I, you know, I'm involved in the Scripture and Doctrine seminar uh, that that is very interested in in seeing these the silos be broken down and people actually talk to each other and learn from each other instead of having this kind of turf war mentality where you know the biblical scholars are throwing shade at the theologians and vice versa. I mean, that uh, actually happened. It does happen. Yeah, I mean, and sometimes it's said in jest, but you know, many a truth was said in jest, right? You know, like the idea that, that my discipline is the one that's really doing it right. Mm. Mm. I mean, you go back in history and I mean, what, what, what would you say Thomas Aquinas is? Is he a biblical scholar? Is he a theologian? Is he a philosopher? Yes. You know, what, what is he? Well, he's writing commentaries on the Bible. Yeah. He's interacting in, in depth with Aristotle's philosophical categories. And he's writing one of the most important you know, works in in, uh, in in theological history. So, and you go even back before Aquinas, right? You got Ignatius, you've got uh, Justin Martyr, you got these guys that are well versed in the in philosophy and say, okay, you say that there is one play Roma. Here is here is my res-. you know you've got an interaction, um, and you don't really you know see that much wedding between the things. Now, to be fair. No one can be Thomas Aquinas, right? <laughs> no one can be, you know, one of these great lights. I mean, so that that maybe yeah. under yeah. uh, uh, illustration, but it at least shows you, like in previous generations before, say the the nineteenth century, um, they there there wasn't this um, this kind of atomization among the theological disciplines. Now, uh, to be fair, like we we can't all be experts in everything. You know, I, I'm, I can't be an expert in Hebrew and Syriac and Greek and Latin and be conversant with, you know, philosophical theology today. Uh, I have five kids. I have a full-time job. You know, I, I have responsibilities that we, we're all limited, so we can't be experts. We need the division of labor, but then we need to learn from each other, right? If we have people who are studying um, the, the languages and history of the biblical text, people who are studying the different areas of church history, people who are studying the philosophical literature, we just need to at least be conversant talking to each other. Why, 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 is there, why has there been such a delineation in the last 200 years even yeah. in, in that direction? Because you do look at like the early church father, you got look at, uh, you know, St. Augustine, you look at Aquinas, you look at Anselm, you look at these guys and they don't seem to have the angst of, well, I need to kind of double down on this I'm going to, I'm going to be a, a scholar on Paul, you know, like ha, ha. stay in my lane, you know, like that's right. That's right. Outside their lane. Right. Well, why do we need lanes? I mean, like, let's just yeah. let's all over the road. I mean, this is all, it's all important. Let's learn as much as we can. Again, yeah. we can't be, all be experts and everything, but I, I, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like an expert in, 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 in this area. Like I said, no historically exactly where it came from. My understanding is it kind of came from the German universities that, that 
that started to split apart um, the the different disciplines into discrete, you know, fields of study. Um, but I don't know that whole history uh, in detail. But I think it it is a modern invention. Uh, the idea that we would atomize the, the theological disciplines and um, kind of keep them separate. Uh, but thankfully, again, some of that's changing. And 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 so part of the answer to your original question is uh, philosophy has always been seen by the great Christian lights as being a handmaiden uh, to theology. It is possible for, for philosophy to, um, to overtake theology. And, and we could point to examples of that in history where philosophy was kind of driving the train in ways that it shouldn't have. Uh, but the best of the Christian tr tradition has said that philosophy has a ministerial role in theology, not a magisterial role. In other words, it's a servant, not a master. And so the role of philosophy is to, is to help give us uh, concepts and arguments that defend and elucidate what the scriptures say about God and the gospel. So the scriptures are the principium, the source, the fountain of theology. Principium uh, being Latin for first principle, right? Yeah. So it's the it's the the source of our theology it comes from the Bible. Yeah. Um, philosophy is not so much a source as it is, uh, 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 again, a, a a servant that helps us. It's kind of a tool that helps us um, understand and defend all that the scriptures say. So that making sure that we don't say crazy stuff. It's right. it's, it's saying your theology has to be reasonable as well because God is not unreasonable there may be difficult things but that doesn't mean that it's unreasonable yeah yeah so so you know if, if you could demonstrate that the doctrine of the trinity or the doctrine of the incarnation entailed a logical contradiction then we should reject those doctrines right Log logic is a kind of negative test for truth uh to show that something is logically coherent is not to prove its truth to demonstrate its truth but if you could sh demonstrate that a theological proposition is illogical, entails a logical contradiction, then it wouldn't be true, not because God has to answer to logic, but because God's nature is rational, right? God is not, God's nature doesn't contradict itself. Well, and that's why there was such a, 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 a fighting about the two natures of Christ, because you see in Scripture, oh, he's seems to be God and they're worshiping him. And so how do we, how does scripture not contradict itself? So that's even the first, you know, the, a, a principium itself of theology is that God is not schizophrenic. God is not, doesn't understand, doesn't know what he wrote prior to, you know, that, that, right. that the theology has to be coherent. Right. And, and to demonstrate its coherence is, is of course not to explain away the mystery. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Christians worry that well, you're just trying to put God in a box and mm. trying to comprehend God. No, 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 you can't comprehend God. I mean, that's not, that's not possible for a creature to do, right? But you can apprehend what God has revealed and defend its coherence. But to defend the coherence of, say, the incarnation, that, that, that Christ is one in person and two in nature, yeah. uh, doesn't entail a logical contradiction. That in no way explains how it works. Right. I mean, I, I mean, uh, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's, it's folly to think that we could somehow exhaust the mystery of, of what it is, um, what it means that God became man. Yeah. Uh, 
what the doctrine is trying to do is not explain the mystery so much as it is to preserve the mystery, right? Mm -hmm. To preserve both sides of, of the tension without letting either. That's good. That's good. So as you, so we've alluded to it a little bit. Um, I'd like to make it more explicit. What, you know, as, as folks are tempted in our in a more pluralistic society with, you know, having private, you know, privatize your own faith type things, like what would you say are some of the bigger challenges to the church? I mean, obviously being able to explain um, the divinity and humanity of the God man um, that he, he persists as the God man, like that, that's, that's a issue of orthodoxy. But as you look across, we can narrow it down because uh, I had Michael Haken on uh, uh, earlier and he said, well, you, you know, we got to narrow it down. Are you talking about the church in North America, the church in Europe, the church in Africa? Because all of them are contextual and they have their own challenges. But as you think about the, the church in the West, um, what do you think are some of the biggest challenges? Yeah, I mean, in some ways I feel ill-equipped to, to offer any kind of sweeping generalizations, but I, I have been, lived in, you know, four or five different states and, and, and seen uh, lots of different churches up close and personal. And um, I've been involved in a lot of healthy churches. So that, yeah, but I, I have seen, you know, from a distance, some less than healthy churches as well. Um, and I was just saying, I think one of the, uh, one of the problems with our churches is that they're, they're atheological. It's not so much that they're anti-theological because there are certain, you know, theological boxes that, you know, most of our churches still feel like they need to check, but it, the theology is not really driving the ministry. And to the degree that ministry is not theologically driven, it's, it's not really distinctively Christian. Hmm. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, because lots of people care about, you know, counseling people through difficult times or helping people be more disciplined or, or uh, successful in their life. Um, having a breakthrough. Yeah. 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 Having some kind of, even, even having some kind of spiritual experience, you yeah. know, a lot, of, a lot of people in our culture are interested in spirituality. Um, but that's that none of those things are distinctively Christian, hmm. uh, right? What makes, what makes ministry distinctively Christian is the story that we tell about who God is and what he's done in Christ and by his spirit. Hmm. And so without that theology, um, driving what we do in ministry, it, again, our ministries aren't really distinctively Christian. Now I'm not suggesting that we just all become a bunch of eggheads and, and read books all the time. I mean, I think that's not the kind of theological, theologically driven ministry that I would envision mm -hmm. one where it's just sort of like a book club, you know, or something like that. Uh, you know, one of, one of my uh, favorite authors, uh, Jamie Smith uh, calls it um, brains on a stick. Yeah. You know, so much of our evangelical ministries are operating uh, as if we're just aiming at the head and we're just filling the, the mind and we're not really as concerned about the body. And about yeah. appetites, yeah. And the desires, yeah. the heart. Um, so uh, that's a mistake. I'm not saying we we um, just you know become like a religious book club, uh, but at the same time, like what is it that drives us in our ministry to help bring uh, healing and wholeness in people's lives? Well, it's because 
Mm -hmm. We believe that God became a man in Jesus Christ precisely in order to overturn the effects of the fall. Mm -hmm. And that God has given us the spiritual resources in scripture and in the church to bring healing and hope to people who are entangled in sin and, and, and desperate situations. Contrast, so, contrast that with an atheological way of, of doing that. Same thing. Same, a, going after the same thing, but in an atheological way. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it almost just becomes sort of the, what you would get at the self-help counter at Barnes & Noble. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, it's, uh, we, we, sort of, we spiritualize the front end of the Christian life. We want to get you in through these mm -hmm. conversion practices. But then once you get in, it becomes just, you know, what you would get, um, again, sort of what you could get on your own apart from the gospel. Now, it's not to say we, there's not a lot to learn from the self-help aisle at Barnes & Noble. We, may, we might find principles there. They're kind of creational wisdom that we can learn and incorporate. I'm not trying to suggest that we have nothing to learn from secular people. Yeah. But again, what, what prevents our ministries from becoming just you know, kind of psychotherapy, uh, and again, nothing wrong with psychotherapy, but what prevents it from being just about that is mm -hmm. the gospel and the spiritual resources that we have in scripture and the Christian tradition, um, at our disposal to help people grow and change and experience God, uh, through Jesus Christ by the spirit. So, um, those are the things I think that are, that are often missing is we don't, we're not really thinking Christianly we just kind of have a Christian veneer over a basically mm. uh, cultural assumption. So give us um, a skeletal framework of what, what that would look like methodologically to approach various matters in the church theologically. Like, is there, is, would there be a framework that somebody could say, okay, step one, step two, you know, like, or is there like, kind of a an overlay of the Christian worldview that you could offer to, to, to challenge a person and say, yeah, you're not really thinking about this theologically. You're thinking about this pragmatically. Pragmatics, again, we're not talking about either or binary type thinking. We're not saying pragmatism is bad. A sheer pragmatism is bad. If, you, you know, your faith has to actually work. You know? Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I wouldn't want to reinvent the will. I mean, the preaching ministry of the church, Sunday school, you know, like, I mean, I, I grew up in churches where we had Sunday school um, for better or worse, you know, like they weren't all, not every class was great, but that's where I learned the books of the Bible. And that's where I learned to memorize scripture. And um, that's where I learned how to study the Bible. And, um, you know, I think that's still, that's still a, a, a helpful place um, for the church to say, here's how you begin to think about the message of the Bible, how it applies to life in these various arenas. Mm -hmm. So, um, so yeah, nothing, I have nothing innovative <laughs> other than That's good. That's good. <laughs> yeah, word, sacrament, Sunday school, catechesis, you know, the things that Christians have been doing for years. Yeah. And I've even tried to help people as you think about the Christian worldview as a superstructure, so to speak, <laughs> that, you know, you, you, and you've mentioned this already, but just to make it explicit, but creation, fall, redemption, consummation right that you have this this create these these creational things of what we're trying to uh, reflect in the earth now after the fall right and, and that's what redemption does is it makes us whole people you know w-h-o-l-e whole people who then reflect that image of god through christ through their relationship with christ so in that that informs how you do evangelism so instead of just 
sharing the gospel, you have this superstructure that says, okay, why are we even doing this? Well, we're doing this to, to help bring reform to the world and not just ethical reform, but a, but a spiritual reform to, to neighbors and friends and family and stuff. So that's great. Now you, um, with with relationship to you mentioned Jamie Smith, um, and then also we there's been within our conversation today just this uh, earthiness this this fact that that God has given the church uh, to the world to to show what that creation fall redemption consummation storyline looks like on in, in the Sunday gathering, uh, also known as liturgy or the service of the people and you and um, Matt Emerson, and he, he's at Oklahoma Baptist University, right? Right. And you, you all have uh, put together a conglomerate of different folks, of which I'm a fellow at the Center for Baptist Renewal. Can you explain the rationale behind that? What, what, are, you, what are you trying to do? How do you, uh, what, what are some misconceptions that, that are leveled at the center? And, and how, but, but first, why, why did you all put this together? Yeah. So Matt and I uh, were both at California Baptist University years ago, um, and um, we, we didn't know each other before. We actually went to college together. We both went to Auburn University, both from Alabama, uh, but didn't know each other until we both lived and worked in California. Hmm. Um, but we became fast friends, re- realized we had a lot in common, not just in terms of our background, but also in terms of our theological conviction. and and. Uh, he, he coming from biblical theology, me coming from systematic theology, we both had an interest in uh, the traditional doctrines of the church. Uh, we both had an interest in the history of interpretation, traditional worship practices. Uh, our different, you know, pilgrimages had just sort of fostered uh, in us a, um, a love and a, and a respect and a reverence for the Christian past. And so... Um, we were, you know, sort of asking how could we bring that kind of flavor to our own Baptist context. And we realized, you know, there are people who were already doing that. Um, you know, one of our uh, heroes and mentors is Timothy George, who's been, you know, um, beating this drum, sounding this alarm, you know, this uh, uh, emphasis for years of helping Baptists um, better position ourselves in the context of the whole church, the historic church, without losing our Baptist distinctives, right? So we're not suggesting that Baptists just, um, you know, abandon what makes us distinctively Baptist in order to sort of play Anglican or something like that, you know? It's, we're not talking about like some kind of Anglican cosplay or something, you know, like that, where we're just, you know, trying to mimic or ape another tradition. Uh, but we are trying to say, um, just as Baptists have many gifts to bring to the collection of traditions in the, the one church, we also have much to receive. Um, and so we can learn from not just our own Baptist forebears and not just our own Protestant forebears, but the whole history behind the Protestant Reformation uh, in the medieval and patristic era as well. So basically it's a, it's a kind of the, um, the principle that that Paul teaches the Corinthians, you know, that all things are yours, whether Paul or Cephas or Apollos, all are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's, you know. So it's that idea that everything in in the church, in the church's history, 
belongs to us as well, that we are inheritors as Baptists. We're inheritors of the great tradition, no less than the Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox or the Anglicans or the Lutherans or the Presbyterians or the Methodists or whoever. Like that we, we too have this great inheritance that we want to learn from. We want to unpack and we want to appreciate and we want to, to glean insights from. Uh, again, without losing our Baptist distinctives. And so, so just through a course of conversations over the years, we uh, developed the idea, you know, with, uh, you know, a friend of ours, Brandon Smith and, and Winston Hotman, who were both at, uh, at uh, uh, Crystal College um, uh, back, at, back at that time, uh, were, had sort of been listening in on some of the stuff that Matt and I were doing and writing and they said, well, hey, what, what if we started a center, you know, where we kind of brought people together? Because they were kind of coming to the, some of the same conclusions in their, through their experience at Crystal. Um, and so we just sort of came together and said, well, let's, let's see if we could just start a website, you know, and ask pastors and academics to, to be a part of it and to contribute. And, um, and so that's kind of how the, the Center for Baptist Renewal was, was born. Now, now you mentioned... Uh that you know what timothy george was doing saying hey we, we we have a voice to to contribute um and we want to be a part like it's almost like hey everybody's playing ball on the field and can we play too like what what is it within the baptist tradition itself that is that is unique to where it has uh somewhat either explicitly or implicitly eschewed the the history or this this liturgical expression uh, that the church, that other traditions have, that you, the, the right. list that you just gave. Yeah, I mean that's that 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 would require a long historical answer, you know, like as to why how do we how do we become so sectarian, you know, <laughs> right? Um, but it does seem like that it is kind of endemic to to uh, certain portions of the Baptist movement to kind of think of ourselves not as um, in any way connected to uh, the pre-Reformation church. And even to the to the reformers, right? right? Um, so there, you know, there there are some strains of the Baptist movement, like the landmark yeah. tradition, that basically don't even see Baptists as Protestants, right? That we're sort of this persecuted minority that can trace our lineage all the way back to John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you even you even hear that, even though there's not many, not not too many. Baptist historians who were arguing for the trail of blood, you know, the same way that land landmarkers did 150 years ago. Uh, you do hear a lot of, a lot of times you'll hear Baptist pastors and laymen talk about, um, you know, that we're kind of neither Catholic nor Protestant that we're, you know, we're our own thing, you know, and, 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 it, and it's that, it, that can kind of develop a sectarian spirit. Now the best of the Baptist tradition, I think has avoided that. If you go back to the, the, the the first century of the Baptist movement in the in the seventeenth century in England, um, the 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 confessional documents that were being written, the books that were being written by Baptists, they were all trying to demonstrate that while yes we have our distinctive Baptist views, what we believe about the Trinity, what we believe about the incarnation, what we believe about the gospel, what we believe about the basic tenets of salvation, these are all we we, we would hold those things in common with other Protestants and the Trinity and the incarnation are things that we would hold in common with Roman Catholics and Orthodox as well. So that, that there was an effort in the, in the six, in the, in the 1600s in England, because Baptists were often 
misunderstood and maligned and persecuted, Baptists had to say, wait a minute, we believe what all Christians believe about the big things. Yeah. Because we baptize only believers doesn't mean that we are Unitarians, <laughs> you know, like we are Trinitarians and we believe in the incarnation, the two natures of, of Christ. And so there, there is a kind of Baptist Catholicity that was built in to the movement from the very beginning. Now, we're not suggesting that we just go back and repristinate what was happening in the 1600s. We kind of want to move beyond that too, right? Because they were, you know, they had their own sex sectarian streak as well. Uh, but there is something that we can retrieve there, um, it, it, even among the earliest Baptists. And that's part of what we're trying to do as well. That's good. What are, what are some misconceptions that, that you've encountered as it relates to, you know, moving in this, in this vein? Yeah. I mean, we, you know, I was actually talking to Timothy George about this not long ago and he was expressing, uh, kind of shock that we're still standing, you know, that we haven't been, um, you know, cr criticized more, uh, severely, um, for, for what we're doing. And uh, part of that is probably because we're small and insignificant, uh, and probably aren't on many people's radars, but we actually haven't gotten a lot of negative pushback. We've gotten mostly positive feedback. Uh, but I think the fear that some people may have, and it's been expressed to us in, in, in some ways is that, you know, are, are you just suggesting that Baptists kind of have to move towards others, other traditions? And are we, are we not also wanting to call the other Christian traditions to come closer to us? Which would look like what, 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 what would that look like in some conversations? Well, I mean, I suppose, uh, you know, they're, they're obviously the, the big question of baptism, right. Um, where the, the sets us apart from, from other Christian traditions. Um, and, you know, there've been some, some Baptists have said, well, maybe we should, maybe we should just accept infant baptism or maybe we should just, uh, accept, you know, whatever the other traditions are doing. Um, and so I think that's the, the concern is to say, well, wait a minute, we, maybe we should hold the line on our Baptist distinctives mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, lovingly exhort the other traditions to consider again, the biblical and historical evidence for, for the Baptist position on baptism. So I think that's part of it. And that's a legitimate, I mean, that's a legitimate uh, critique. We certainly are not trying to suggest that we paper over yeah. our Baptist distinctive so that we can just play nice with other traditions. You know, like we need to, I think, hold fast to uh, the gifts that we bring, because I do think the Baptist tradition brings certain gifts to the whole church, uh, not least of which is our um, emphasis on, um, you know, sort of individual, religious liberty. Um, and so that no one should be coerced by the church or the, or, or the state to believe something against their conscience. And, you know, Anabaptists before us and then the Baptist movement uh, in, in 17th century England were emphasizing that before anyone else, you know? Um, and so, and some of that was for self-preservation, right? Because they were persecuted. Um, but other traditions have kind of made their way around to affirming religious liberty as well. And so that, I, again, I'm not suggesting that Baptists are the only ones, you know, or the, or the only originator of this, um, this idea, because it's, it's tied to a whole history in the enlightenment and 
pilgrims and you know like there's a whole there's a whole uh, history there as well it's not just baptist but i do think this is an area where the baptists have a unique gift to bring this this emphasis on uh religious liberty so that's just an area where we we don't want to we don't want to lose those baptist distinctives our unique baptist history but at the same time we want to be open mm-hmm. open hearted open mind minded to to learn from uh what others have done that may improve upon what we are doing that's great maybe we'll have a follow-up podcast once the persecution starts coming yeah right <laughs> now um let, let me uh close out by asking um just real real quickly if if somebody wanted to delve into the depths of christology mm. what are uh a couple books or three books that you would recommend that they could introductory and then really kind of uh, seminal work on on christology particularly uh, in your your area with regards to the natures of christ yeah i mean i would i would the ones i i often recommend um are uh saint athanasius on the incarnation in the fourth century uh gregory of nazianzus five theological orations also from the fourth century um Cyril of Alexandria's On the Unity of Christ in the 5th century. Uh, those three together, I think, will give you a good basis of what the classical view is on the person of Christ. Um, you know, we, we, I, 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 I guess I could try to think about more contemporary books. Um, that's, but, that's a good place to start. But I think, like, we really need to read the classics, you know. Like, and, and I think we can read the classics. I think sometimes we're, we're fearful that well, we're not going to understand it or we're going to need a guide or something like that. But I think once you actually read the, these important texts, you realize they're, they're pretty accessible. You know, I mean, if you're willing to, to try uh, to, to understand them. Um, and so I always try to get my students to read primary sources uh, on all these things instead of just relying on contemporary summaries. So that, that's, that's where I would start for the incarnation or those, those three. Great. Great. What about, um, what about for liturgy? And uh, somebody's like, yeah, that sounds interesting or intrigued. Uh, where, where, where would you suggest they go two or three books? Yeah. Yeah. There I would, I would kind of think more in terms of contemporary literature, I guess. Uh, I mentioned earlier, Jamie Smith's uh, works um, on, on liturgy, which, you know, he sees as a fairly broad category that kind of includes anything that's forming and shaping us and our habits. Um, but a, a book that, um, that's desiring the kingdom and imagining the kingdom. Right. And then he's got the third book that just came out, which is more on ethics, right? That, um, was that the king Wait, is awaiting the king. Yeah. Awaiting the king. Yeah. yeah. But he has a popular distillation of the main gist of, of, of those books called you are what you love. Okay. And that's one that I've been recommending over the last couple of years to people. Um, which is just a, helpful way to think about like what motivates us mm-hmm. what drives us in the Christian life and how are we being formed and shaped by the culture around us and how should we be formed and shaped by the church's liturgy and in our spiritual formation and our family lives and, and, and our vocations and all that. So it's, that's a very helpful book. Uh, you are what you love by James K a Smith. Um, another one that just on the importance of, of liturgy um, that's really accessible is uh, Mike Cosper's Rhythms of Grace. I read that a few years ago and found that really helpful uh, from an evangelical Southern Baptist music minister uh, who 
um, many people may know of his work with uh, Sojourn um, Music, but um, but Cosper's book on on um, how you know how how worship shapes us um, and and kind of thinking about how to structure worship. I think that's another good one on liturgy. Great. And then last um, three, two or three books for someone who is uh, that, that you would that you actually gift to people. Uh, who are new believers or really just starting in their Christian walk? What are some devotional type books that you that you gift to other people? Two or three. Yeah, I mean, some of the ones that I are kind of my go-to's. Um, uh, actually, the, the Smith book I mentioned earlier, "You Are What You Love," is one one of the ones that I've been recommending lately for people to understand the Christian life. Uh, but then some of the others are kind of classic evangelical works of the 20th century, Knowing God by J.I. Packer, Basic Christianity by John Stott. Um, those are a couple that are just kind of classic works, I think, for thinking about uh, the Christian life uh, and the Christian faith. Um, the Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges is still, that one holds up well, I think. Uh, so the stuff I, the stuff I was reading in college, I still, I still go back to that as, uh, you know, the Celebration of Discipline, by Richard Foster. Um, those are, those are the, those are the ones that I was reading in college and, and at a seminal point in my own life. And so I think they're still helpful for people to read devotionally more, you know, more recently in more recent years, I've been reading older stuff. Um, uh, and especially, uh, St. Maximus, the confessor, uh, in the seventh century, he was a theologian and, and monk and theological controversialist. Uh, who was involved in this issue, this debate about the two wills. So I, you know, started reading him in relation to my dissertation, but, um, but he wrote a lot about the spiritual life. Uh, one book that I, if I were to recommend just one from him uh, is a book called 400 chapters on love. Huh. <laughs> uh, just chapters is a very brief sort of paragraph. So there's sort of 400 paragraphs uh, on the nature of love, love of God, love of neighbor, uh, self-love, love of sin, you know, so there's all, all kinds of things going on there. Again, he's, he, he was a monk, so I don't always agree with, you know, the kind of uh, super ascetic, you know, monastic view. Um, so I can't just sort of wholeheartedly recommend everything that he says, but there's still a lot of penetrating insights mm. into, into how we, um, how our hearts are operating when we sin and how we can grow and change to be more holy. So wonderful. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Now, if, if anybody wanted to connect with you um, and learn more about the different projects that you're involved in, how, how would they get a hold of you? How would they find out more about you and connect? Uh, I'm on Twitter. Um, that's the last social media that I have. I've deleted all the others, but uh, Luke stamp at Luke stamps on Twitter. Um, and it's L-U-K-E stamps, S-T-A-M-P-S. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the center for Baptist renewal.com where you can see what's going on with, uh, CBR there. Great. Great. Well, good. Well, thank you so much, friend. It's, uh, great to be able to do this and be able to share all that, uh, your, you've got your hand in and, and I'm very thankful for all that you're doing, uh, both at Anderson and then as well as with the center, uh, and uh, I just wanted to close us with a word of prayer, and then we'll uh, 
we'll uh, say sayonara. All right. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, my pleasure. Father, thank you so much for friendships that are built upon uh, our common common bond in Christ. Thank you for Luke and for his friendship to me. Uh, thank you for his desire to think deeply uh, about your son and how to explain the, the need to embrace uh, the two natures of Christ. And so thank you for his love also for liturgy and how that shapes us and how we are liturgical people by nature and, and how he wants to bless and help other people mine the treasures of our brothers and sisters who have gone before us all the way back to the second and third century. Lord, what, what a gift uh, Luke is to your church. And we pray that you would bless him and strengthen him as he continues to labor, as he continues to teach and raise up men and women who are fervently pursuant of the things of God. We pray that you would bless his work and continue to give him favor as he, uh, as he, leads leads the way in many ways uh, in, in these matters. Thank you for this time. Pray that you would continue to multiply it as many people listen to this and are, are encouraged in their faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you, brother. Amen.